Well, on July 1st, we will have yet another opportunity to celebrate Canada Day. And I suspect that the public celebrations will be a little different this year, but still we get to celebrate Canada. Did you know that on July 1st, 1867, the province of Canada, together with New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, came together and officially became one dominion. And when that happened, they created one government, a house of commons, a judiciary, a senate, and a taxation system. And these are all defined in what's called the Constitution Act, which lays out the groundwork for what it means to be a Canadian. Now, unless you die or you emigrate from our country, you will remain a Canadian. And that can't be taken from you. So here we are, a room full of Canadians. Now, from a secular viewpoint, that's the only citizenship you have. You're a citizen of a country, a nation. I mean, you might have dual citizenship, American and U.S., but you're just a citizen of a nation or a country or a dominion, a republic here on good old planet Earth. But from a sacred perspective, we also believe that we have a second citizenship. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So when you become a believer, a blood-bought believer, a born-again Christian, you inherit a second citizenship. You're a Canadian, but you're also a Christian. And as Canadian Christians... We desire to be good citizens of both realms. We take our cue from passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, which read, And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your own hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders And so that you may not be dependent on anybody. So we're Canadians and we're also Christians and we want to be good Canadians and we also want to be good Christians. Does this mean then that Canadians who happen to be Christians should disengage from Canadian civic duties or interpret the separation of the church from the state to mean that we refrain from politics, we hide, we retreat, we respond passively to the weaknesses and errors of the state. Is that what that means? I think most of us, in all honesty, are raised in churches where subliminally that's what we were taught. You're a Canadian, but mostly you're a Christian. Spend your time being a Christian. Don't worry about what it means to be a Canadian. Now, I would suggest to you, and I'm going to take you to Acts 16 this morning, that if you're Worldview says, if your mindset is, 
that the world is divided into two very different realms. That being a Canadian is over here and being a Christian is over here and they have virtually nothing to do with each other that you need to correct your worldview. Sadly, secularized Christianity, that is Christianity that's more influenced by societal thinking than the word of God, I think has fallen headlong into this trap. And so when many Christians think of the church, I would propose that they think of the church primarily as a nonprofit group or as a farm team of sorts, minor leaguers, that on occasion provide players to Big Brother. But at the end of the day, we rely on Big Brother to make it all happen. And we just kind of quietly sneak through life, keeping our heads down, saying very little, never talking about politics in the church. And by the way, I would like to issue a public apology for that because I think I've talked too little about politics. I had a guy leave our church a while ago. He says, you talk too much about politics. I said, thank you for the compliment. I think I've talked too little about politics because I'm a Christian, but I'm also a Canadian. And we're going to see in the word of God that the people of God must figure out a way to be both at the same time and to be good at both at the same time. So what we see in Scripture, this is my big idea if you want to jot this down. And then we'll get into Acts 16. Christians are accountable to both, number one, promote the kingdom of God, and two, hold the dominion accountable. Now notice the word dominion and kingdom aren't really that much different, but they do refer to two different spheres. Christians are both responsible to promote the purposes of the kingdom of God, the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. But they're also responsible to hold the dominion accountable. Where do we see that in scripture? Let's go to Acts 16. And the first thing we're going to see at the beginning of Acts 16, verse 25 and following, is that we must learn to be good citizens of heaven first and foremost. So let's just talk a little bit about what that looks like. We're supposed to promote, we're supposed to talk much of, we're supposed to incarnate the values of the kingdom of God. Do you know who the Apostle Paul was? Anybody? Significant player in the redemptive plan of God or minor figure? Pretty significant, right? Notably, the most well-known apostle in the New Testament didn't write the most verses. Luke, Luke, as one of the followers of Christ, did that. But as an apostle, he was the most uh, well-written of the apostles and wrote the greatest number of books. So if you add Acts and Luke up, you actually have more material than you have in the Pauline epistles. Of course, Luke wasn't an apostle. Paul was. But here's what it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. In church? 
No. And the prisoners were listening to them. Oh, they were doing prison visits. No, they were inmates. So they're in jail, and they're praying and singing hymns to God. They must have done something really bad, right? The text goes on to say, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And then the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, And he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why? Because he was responsible. And secondly, because he was sleeping when it happened. And you don't sleep on the job when you're a jailer. You stay awake. Now, why were Paul and Silas, these men of God, in jail? Before we go any further, let's just tell the backstory. The backstory is they were out doing public ministry. And they saw a young girl who was demon-possessed. And out of compassion for her, and as a demonstration of the power of the gospel, they exercised these demons from this young girl, who, we discover in the narrative, was being used by her owners for financial gain. So she was demon-possessed, but they used her for financial gain. You know, like people that like to go to fortune tellers and crystal ball readers and all that kind of stuff. There's a a certain segment of society that's very interested in the occult. And they were making money off this girl as a demon-possessed girl. They cast the demons out of her. You'd think that everyone would be quite excited about that, but the handlers of this girl rat out Paul and Silas. The officials come, they beat them, and they toss them in jail as Jews that are disturbing Rome. This is roughly the equivalent of saying the Christians are disturbing Canada. Now, I want you to lock this idea down because it's going to become important later on. They They were dividing Paul and Silas's citizenships into two categories. The Jews, the God-fearers, were disturbing pagan Rome. It's like, well, the Christians are messing with Canadian values. Yeah, but we're both. And what we'll discover later on is that Paul was not only a Jew, but he was also a Roman. And that matters in terms of what happens next. So I want you to keep in mind as we move forward in the text that you're a Christian, but you're also a Canadian. Oh, well, here we have the men in jail. They're worshiping God in jail, which is super awesome because they weren't hiding their faith. They weren't going to throttle it down because the world was after them. And as a result of their faithfulness to God and in God's redemptive plan, God unfastens their chains unfastens the chains of everybody around them, works a miracle to save them, and then creates a ministry opportunity to minister to the jailer who was overseeing them. So the text goes on. But Paul cried out in a loud voice to the jailer, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Nobody's run off. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, 
Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, wouldn't you love it if more people just straight up asked you that question as an evangelist? Instead of trying to circle in and remember the evangelistic seminar you went to, how do I get, those, how do I get the conversation going? And the guy just runs in and falls at their feet. How do I, how do I get saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is the mechanism that we issue or exercise in order for God to graciously regenerate and save us. And they spoke the word of God to him and to all who were in his house. I'm not sure what was going on there. Maybe there was a house off the jail where his family lived, but the household obviously comes in. This is really important. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he, ba- he was baptized at once. That's the biblical pattern, not wait for 15 discipleship classes, be interviewed in front of your churches, prove yourself that you're a mature disciple. The biblical The biblical process is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are you trusting in him alone? Great, you qualify. Let's get you baptized. Unfortunately, in so many of our churches, there's this wild delay in baptism because we've been taught, you've got to prove that you're a mature Christian before you can be baptized. That's not the biblical pattern at all. Discipleship comes afterwards. And then he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So even in the darkness of the prison cell, there's this dramatic ministry opportunity. Now, sidebar, because this is going to be cycling through some of your minds right now, this passage has often been used to try to prove baby baptism, to try to prove non-believers baptism, because you're like, well, the jailer is the one that comes and asks the question, and all of a sudden, his household, meaning his wife and however many kids he has, were baptized with him. Now, one of the things we need to understand, there's one thing in the scriptural text I want to point you back to, and then there's one cultural point I want to make. When he's preaching the gospel to this man, the text is very explicit in verse 32 that his household was there listening as well. You see that? And they spoke the word of God to him and to all who were in his house. So this wasn't like, well, dad believes, so I guess we will. We don't even know what you're talking about. We're just going to kind of go along with it. We're going to follow daddy to church kind of thing. That's not what's going on here. They obviously all were exposed to the gospel. So the second point I want to make is cultural. And this is where you're probably going to start popping some brain cells because this is so hard for Western people to wrap their minds around in that we have, within our culture, a radical view of individualism. So, we hear parents saying this, and by the way, this is, a, this is one of the stupidest things you could ever do as a parent, just to be straight with you. Um, well, I'm just going to let my kids decide who they're going to worship. Just going to let them figure it out. Okay, that's called like dumb with a capital D. That's a really bad idea. Because there's no spiritual neutral territory And if you're not speaking truth to them, someone's going to speak truth to them. So you need to act, live, and persuade your children to be Christians to the best of your ability and let God take it from there. Okay, that's biblical parenting, by the way. But what you need to understand in ancient times, it would have been virtually like 
unheard of, with some exceptions, but virtually unheard of for any household to be marked by multiple faiths. Virtually unheard of. Because they had this sense of corporate solidarity. So if I was living in ancient times and I'm a pagan, guess what? My wife's going to be a pagan and most of my kids are probably going to be pagans too. But then if I encounter the transformational gospel of Jesus Christ, there would have been such an elevated view of the role of the spiritual leader in the home, the father, the head of the household, that if dad says, look, I have encountered saving faith in Jesus and I am declaring that our whole family is now gonna follow Jesus Christ, it wouldn't have been like, oh, do we have to? It would have been like, we respect our father. Our father is the spiritual head of the household. And if he believes, we believe. If the dad believes, the wife believes, the children believe, genuinely believe. Because they had such an elevated view of spiritual leadership and they thought of themselves as part of a corporate whole, not only in terms of their family households, but also in terms of their nationhood. This is why entire nations would worship the true and living God or entire nations would worship Baal or entire nations would worship Moloch or entire, entire nations would worship whoever. That's so different than our nation. Because like every person on your street worships someone different and we think that's normal, but this is actually very abnormal compared to what has taken place in most of human history. So this passage cannot be used as a proof text for, in, proof text for infant baptism or even automatic household salvation, but you need to understand they all heard the message of the gospel. That's clear in verse 33. And households were typically not split, very rarely split when it came to matters of faith, except for a few exceptions where someone is converted out of paganism into Christianity as maybe one of the younger members of the family, like in the case of Titus or Timothy or someone like that. So that's a little sidebar, but I think it's worth noting. Now here's some lessons. I wrote down a few of them here, and you can tell me whether or not these are good lessons. So I want you to give me a thumbs up if you think these are good lessons or thumbs down if you think these are bad lessons, literally, thumbs up, thumbs down. You all got at least one thumb? All right, so up or down. So here's the first lesson. The people of God are called to worship God regardless of their circumstances, whether they're in jail or out of jail. Thumbs up. So that's a good lesson. Circumstances don't determine whether we worship God or not. We don't sing when someone tells us we can sing and stop singing when someone tells us we can't. We worship God regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Lesson number two, God responds to the worship of his people. Thumbs up. God blew all the handcuffs or chains or whatever they were using to tie them up apart. And there's this earthquake which scares the dickens out of everyone else in the place. But the believers have this holy contentment and are able to capitalize upon the situation to worship the true and living God. Three, God uses miraculous deeds to draw the attention of the lost to those who have been found. That's a big thumbs up. God uses his miracles among his people to, pardon the pun, rattle the cages of the lost and draw their attention to what God is doing in our midst. Lesson number four, Christians should just quietly endure suffering, false accusations, and beatings at the hand of 
rulers because after all, it's a great witness. That's a thumbs down. But I think some of us have been sort of taught, especially if you come from more passive religious traditions, that that's true, that we just sort of endure it. So we're going through tribulation, we'll just pray your way through it. Yeah, but there's injustice taking place. I was unjustly fired. I was unjustly treated. I was abused. The church was persecuted. Well, just, just, let's just have a prayer meeting. Just have a prayer meeting. Just pray about it. Don't say anything because you're a Christian. But I'm also a Canadian. Don't worry about that. This is a falsehood. Now, it's true that witness can take place through our quietness, through our endurance. Jesus demonstrated that at times. Jesus demonstrated that most notably on the cross. And it's also true that the Bible says, turn the other cheek when you experience personal offense. And that's personal offense. That's not a proof text for war. Or you, know, you can't go to war because you turn the other cheek. That's a ridiculous interpretation of the text. It's not in the text. It's about personal offense for the sake of the gospel. But what I want to argue today is that believers are actually entrusted with the grand task of holding governments accountable to their own moral and natural law. Let me say that again. Christians are also accountable to hold governments accountable to their own natural and moral law. So you aren't a Christian or a Canadian. You are both at the same time. Therefore, we must be engaged citizens of earth, whatever nation we find ourselves in. Look at verse 35. <clears throat> but when it was day, <clears throat> excuse me, but when it was the day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. <clears throat> and the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And we're like, it's a win. These ministers of the gospel, get out. <clears throat> now go in peace. Just be quiet. Don't say anything. Just go back to your prayer meeting. And hunker down in your churches and do your praying and all that stuff. Whatever you guys do in those churches. So, so good, so, so far, so good. They were released. Thanks, honey. They're told to go in peace. Like, that would be a subtle hint that would be the equivalent of saying, and by the way, stop irritating everyone else. Just go shut up. Go back to your churches. But there's a problem. The problem is that the authorities had overstepped their boundaries. And so Paul, and who doesn't respect Paul, pushes back. And instead of just taking them up on their offer, he says in verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are, what's the next word? Roman citizens, and they've thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. What we have Paul doing here is he references the law 
that these individuals, as Roman leaders, had subjected themselves to as well. He, re- he knew the law, he references the law, and he's essentially saying, no, we're not gonna go secretly, we're gonna actually hold you accountable to the law that you've been given the authority to uphold. I poured a concrete driveway this week. I think I breathed in too much cement. So my throat's a little scratchy today. <clears throat> but he, ca- he calls them out, and he calls them out on their attempts to avoid responsibility. Now, this might sound very strange to those of us that maybe grew up being taught that the entire Christian ethic boils down to turn the other cheek. Don't say anything. Just take it. But here we have a balance. Sometimes there are other responses expected of us as Canadian Christians, as Jewish Romans. Verse 38 says, And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They're like, "Uh uh-oh, we've been caught. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. We'll take our time to leave the city, thank you very much. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. Ultimately, the ministry of the word through Paul and Silas ceased in that city, but the rule of law was reestablished by the efforts of Paul and Silas. Let me say that again. The rule of law was reestablished by the efforts of these Christian men. How is this relevant? It's very relevant. Because for several years now, probably a good 20 or so, maybe a little more, the church, and let me just remind you a little bit about Canadian law. We have something called a charter of rights and freedoms. If you haven't read it, please read it. We have a charter of rights and freedoms. Guarantees in law freedom of religion, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of expression. And if those are ever mistreated, and they have been many times in Canada, if they are ever mistreated or cast aside, Canadian Christians should stand up and say, no, you're violating your own law. Where do we see this? Well, for many years now, we've had special interest groups that tend to be, that certainly appear to be running our government. Special interest groups, especially those that specialize in and endorse deviant views of human sexuality. You hear what I'm talking about? Heads out of the sand, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, you can do what you want behind closed doors, but that's not enough, evidently. There has been massive pressure put on Canadian Christians to buckle to their agenda, not to just say, okay, you can do what you want behind closed doors, 
but we want to hear you endorse it. We want you to fly our flag. We want you to actively promote our agenda. We have a charter, bud. And the charter says, I am free to pick my religion. I am free to say what I want to say without being bullied or pressured or unduly portrayed in the media. I can say what I want. I can go where I want because I'm guaranteed in the charter rights of movement, the right to pursue gainful employment. But increasingly, Canadian Christians seem to be either absolutely naive to what's going on around them or scared to death or just don't care. And then sadly, there's a whole group within, and I'll use this word in its most broadest sense, Christianity, who actually have said, okay, we'll promote it. I was sent a picture by a dear brother in our church last week of a sign of a church out in Tecumseh that was promoting the agenda that you know I'm referring to on their sign. And then we have freedom of worship being suspended. We're going to tell you whether you can celebrate communion or not, whether you can worship or not, and how many people can come into your churches or not. You bunch of dummies, you can't figure it out for yourselves. You're just the farm team after all. You're the minor leaguers, we're the major leaguers. We know what's best for you, you bunch of fools, you bunch of religious sentimentalists. And I would say the vast majority of Canadian Christians are like, okay, tell us what to do. What percentage of alcohol do we need in our hand sanitizer? Because we couldn't possibly figure that out for ourselves, could we? And this is the state of modern day Christianity. And it's a fact. And again, so many believers seem to care less. And I'd like to suggest today, based upon the precedent of Acts 16, that you are in gross violation of Scripture if you separate your spiritual citizenship from your earthly citizenship. You're a dualist. You bought into a secular view of the world. A Christian view of the world is you are both until God calls you home. I will also say, while it's been many, many years, <clears throat> not too much longer, it'll be 100 years since, a couple more decades, it'll be 100 years since we fought a world war. It's been a long time. That there are people, even many of our ancestors, that died for the freedoms that were written into our charter in 1982. Why were they written in 1982? That's not very long ago because they were always assumed before that. And then people realize, you know what? I, don't, I think people are sort of losing it. We better put them into a document. And so we have a document, and the preamble to that document says that our country is founded based upon an acknowledgement of two things, the rule of law and the supremacy of God. That still stands. And that's not some airy-fairy, you name them whatever you want to name them kind of God. That's the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible. That's how that word would have been understood when the charter was written not too long ago in 1982. People died for these freedoms, 
But unfortunately, there are many among us that are no longer prepared to die to keep them. Much less even speak out against gross violations of the freedoms that some of our forebears died for. And let me ask you this, how's the silence working out for us? How's that working? How's the passivity working out for the church in Canada? How's the, let's take the turn the other cheek ethic and apply it to everything working out for the Canadian church? Weak leadership, cowards pastoring our churches, fear, trusting in chariots and horses, instead of the eternal God. The new liberal church is reopening. And you know, the blessing of the, the new liberal churches is, is that they do a really good job in saying, come as you are. But the curse of the new liberal churches is, they then say to you, and stay as you are. Come as you are is not such a bad message. Come on in, hear the gospel. But I don't want to stay the way I am. <laughs> I want to be transformed. I want to become more godly. I want to become more knowledgeable of the things of God. I want to become more equipped. Come as you are is a good message. Stay as you are is a doctrine of the devil. That's not the message of the gospel. We've lost generations of our children. And it's amazing to me how often even those that research churches will say, you know why the church is losing its children? Because the church is doing something wrong. I would say that many households are doing something wrong. But in addition to that, we have essentially turned over the education, the upbringing of most of our children to a secular, godless world. Little Johnny, I'm going to send you to a secular school. Never going to ask you questions about what you're learning when you get home. Just going to trust the seculars to educate you. I'm going to let you watch anything you want on television, which is not only secular, most of it's just frankly absolutely horrendously ungodly. I'm going to bring you to church once in a while, but in the meanwhile, our priority is the local secular sports team. You know, and great things take place in locker rooms, right? And then we wonder why our kids are whacked. We wonder, like, why is the church losing its children? Why, Why is my child such a godless thinker. Well, I'm sorry, but a 45-minute sermon on Sundays isn't going to correct tens of hours of secular messages during the week. It's just not working. We do not, therefore, as Christians, defend godless laws. We don't permit them. We don't allow them. The church exists in part, as Paul and Silas demonstrated, to hold the government accountable to adhere to natural and moral law. You ever thought about that? That's part of our role, to hold the government accountable to natural and moral law. To to say, you must walk in integrity. What does that mean? You must walk straight forward with the documents that you have agreed to uphold. Instead of allowing the tail to wag the dog, the special interest groups to tell you what you're going to and not going to say. Secularism says there's this radical dualism. The church is over here, the state is over here. A sacred view encourages us to see ourselves as dual citizenships. I am going to be held responsible for my heavenly citizenship when I stand before God. And I'm going to be held responsible for my Canadian citizenship 
when I stand before God. You know, when the Ark of the Covenant was captured, the people of God had lost their way, lost their minds, become confused and godless, and God permitted the Ark of the Covenant to be captured, and Eli, the incompetent priest, was trying to govern the nation and doing a terrible job. His sons were a couple of absolute losers. And God took them all, and the ark was taken, and that symbolized the presence of God had left the people of God. And when that happened, Eli's daughter-in-law, who gave birth to a child during that time, said, I'm going to name my child Ichabod. How's that for a name? Probably not on your top 10 name lists to name your next child. But Ichabod, and the, the biblical text tells us that Ichabod means the glory has departed from Israel. How did that happen? How is it that the glory of God departed from his covenant people? How did that happen? Because both the leadership and the people became totally fine and comfortable with God's law being thrown aside. And it was the whim and the will of the people that ruled the day. And the will and whim of the people apart from God always leads to destruction, never toward holiness, but away from it. This is the story of human history. We are rebels without a cause. That's who we are. And while that was a theocracy and this is a constitutional monarchy, I think there's a principle there for us to consider. I wonder if the glory of God has departed from our country, and it has, and is quickly departing from many of our churches, and that's true, because God's spiritual leaders and the people of God are more concerned about being liked than being righteous. They're more concerned about flying under the radar and turning the other cheek than they are from standing up for the things that God, by his grace, has permitted to be written into the documents of our, our Canadian charter and constitution, which actually reflect the timeless truths of God. In the charter, when it says we acknowledge the supremacy of God, that sounds an awful lot like, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Thank God that something that foundational to scripture is actually in our charter. Why would we not want to defend that? As we come up to July 1st in a few years, we will celebrate 153 years as a nation. And as we move forward, may I encourage you and exhort you and beckon you to change the way you think and to promote with all your might the purposes and plans of God, even if that means going to jail for it. And if you do, keep worshiping him there. Food's pretty good, by the way, I've heard. 
but also hold the dominion of Canada accountable to its obligations and responsibilities to stand for justice, natural law, and its own commitments under the clear acknowledgement of the supremacy of the one true and living God. You are a Canadian Christian. Be both. Be good at both to the glory and honor of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.